science. I'm Andrew Glessner. Unfortunately, no Malcolm Love with us today, but I am delighted to say that uh, you're not just stuck with me for the hour because I'm joined in the studio by Hannah Bestwick and Maddie Nichols. Hello. Hello. And, um, right, so have you all seen Electric Dreams, the film that that song was taken from? Uh, I, I have not. I'm really sorry. Well, we know this from doing the podcast that I just haven't seen really that many uh, <laughs> sci-fi-related films, so yeah. obviously not. Well, um, I, generally... I think that that is the best song from a terrible film ever made. So if anyone's listening and has got a better idea of a good song from a terrible film, let me know. But I think that's a brilliant song, isn't it? And yeah. Really it's a terrible film. film. A really, really okay. awful film about somebody falling in love with a computer. Oh, that, oh, sounds, that sounds very familiar. Yeah. <laughs> they tried to redo that, didn't they? Was it called Her? Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. Her and I quite like that film. A bit weird. Machina but... as well, in a way. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Actually, while we're here... Hannah. <laughs> Hannah. Look what we did there. <laughs> what, what a segue, guys. <laughs> yeah, Hannah is currently finishing a dissertation for a Master's in Science Communication. Yeah, um, I'm looking at uh, films that have AI and robot characters um, yeah. over the last 50 years. Now, I couldn't watch every single one of those films, so I had to take an unbiased sample. How do you do that? How do I what? Take, take an, un- an unbiased sample. I had to use like an online database and then select... Like parameter, it's really boring. I'm sorry. I had to select yeah. some parameters to say like top films um, featuring keyword robot, keyword AI, yeah. um, and then it turned out that it just didn't. It gave me like 20, 20 post 2010, no post 2000, and then about two pre. And because I wanted it to cover 50 years, I had to shift some dates around and oh. manage to get one for every two year period, which. I'm going to have to justify at some point. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. It's, well, it's really interesting. You don't interesting. have to justify it now, do you? <laughs> no, 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 no. This isn't were... a presentation yet, so... <laughs> I didn't realise there were that many films that they came out with more or greater frequency than, you know, every two years, especially yeah. over the last 50 years. I mean, it's, it's quite difficult because on things like IMDb, which is the site that I ended up using, uh, because it's got the, the largest database of, like, films... Like people didn't really have that much access to the internet in the same way that we do now until like post very much like after 2000. People only really rate films that they have actually seen, and if they're in their mind, if the people are talking about them, so if they're more, if they've come out, people will go on and rate them. So anything pre 2000, 2000 really, people just didn't haven't really bothered rating. Um, unless they particularly didn't like them or particularly did like them, having seen them at a later date. Is, is there any kind of have you seen any things? And has has the way we portray AI, portray robots, changed over? Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of different things that have changed. It's so there's a theory that before the 70s, people couldn't really imagine like AI as something that we could interact with. They thought it was really, really far off sci-fi. So the kind of robot characters they had before the 70s tended to be more representations of like soldiers or mindless workers and things like that, rather than actually an exploration of what artificial intelligence might be like to interact with, as we see in things like Ex Machina and Her, like you said, mm-hmm. what effect it would have on actual people. Okay. Well, the, okay, that's the science, yes, but I'm interested in the film as well. So, <laughs> are there any films that you haven't seen? That, that I hadn't seen? Yeah, that you saw and thought, wow, this is amazing. There's, there's, a, there's a lot of films I hadn't seen, right. definitely. Um, ones that I... 
ones that I thought were amazing. Um, Definitely, I hadn't, okay, I'm really sorry, I hadn't seen Terminator or Terminator 2. Yeah. And when I watched those, I really, really enjoyed them. What's that? <laughs> Neither Andrew or I had seen Terminator <laughs> until they did the special anniversary showing. Oh, really? Like a few weeks ago. That's yeah. amazing. I have to, I, I mean, I'll admit this now, it's on the yeah. radio, so it's okay, no one will notice. Um, but I, I, I never seen Terminator, it's a massive science fiction film. I've never yeah. seen Terminator because I always thought it was a bit scary. A bit scary. <laughs> when, I, when I was growing up. And and obviously, we all know the quotes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like That's having never seen the film, like yeah. I'd make the quote and know it was from Terminator. Yeah. But yeah, having actually seen the film, it's like okay, I feel yeah. justified. Now. <laughs> yeah. But I had the same with like Matrix and things like that. And you're like, you suddenly watch them, and you're like, oh, that's why people say yeah. these things. Right? Okay, I get it now. Definitely not breaking news, but Terminator films are great, aren't they? Well, the first yeah, two. Pretty right? good. Yeah. Um, anyway, listen, let's get okay. on to some actual science. <laughs> if you want to have more science and science fiction, of course, you can listen to me and Maddie regularly on the Cosmic Shed podcast on thecosmicshed.com. Excellent. But, um, if you didn't want to do that, carry on listening to Love and Science. <laughs> uh, right, I, I take it we're all glued to our computer screens on Friday as Cassini ended its mission. I, I was in Italy, so I couldn't do that. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> Sorry. I'm mad you're probably doing proper science. <laughs> yeah, I was in the lab, uh, slaving yeah. away. Uh, no, I did watch the footage later. Okay. Postponed excitement. Okay. And I relived the moment for myself, too. Nice. <laughs> With feel, everyone else. Did you feel... Because I've noticed people saying this on Twitter and mm. in, in face-to-face. I do tend to speak to people in face-to-face as well. And um, <laughs> uh, it's saying how much they miss it. You know, it's, it's a space mission. It's a spacecraft. But there was yeah. a certain amount of sadness as it crashed into uh, Saturn on Friday. Do you feel that or not really? I don't, I don't think I, I feel personally sad but it does I, I guess when I when you see like a big crowd of people hugging and sort of being sad that the project's come to an end you do feel a sort of bereavement on their behalf mm-hmm. like that's what I feel mm-hmm. yeah I can empathize and obviously with the nature of um, Cassini which is what we're talking about yeah, <laughs> in I'm case people, people yeah. haven't caught on yeah. Um, yeah the Cassini mission I can kind of see you know because it is they worked on this project for such a long time and put so much of their lives into it like either before it was launched and mm. then while it's been over there mm. and I guess in a way it must be kind of like it's a very extreme analogy here um seeing a child grow up okay, yeah. <laughs> or you know it might be like it's like your baby yeah. right something you've worked on so hard and you see it and it goes and it continues to you know transmit data back so it's it's working as you want it to as it gets further and further away mm. and then it manages to orbit Saturn for 13 years or whatever it was yeah, <laughs> I've yeah. forgotten yeah. um still That's collecting nice. data and transmitting it back so it's working exactly how it should. And then sadly, for no real reason, because it's not really you know, malfunctioning or anything like that, you've got to make it commit suicide yeah. by plummeting into the yeah. planetary atmosphere. Yeah. Which must be quite sad, because, you know, it's not malfunctioning. Was it's it exactly what it was. Because it ran out of fuel. It was yeah. Good, yeah, it was running out of fuel, definitely. Mm. And it was, at some point, it'd start malfunctioning, at which point it could then crash into Enceladus or one of these places where we think there might be life and that could contaminate the life. Right, Which yeah. is, uh, you know, it's a wonderful thought, isn't it? There's a, a spaceship the size of a bus orbiting around Saturn and we have to crash it into Saturn so that we don't disturb the life that's on one of Saturn's moons. Mm. I have to say, in 2004, when it launched, I didn't think that was what we were going to be talking about. Mission. That yeah. is pretty, pretty phenomenal stuff. And, it, and just the last photograph that it took, we should have some music because this is a radio show. Big with moment. Music in it. But, um, <laughs> just imagine it in your inner monologue. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, there's, um, 
Uh, yeah, so uh, it, the, the last photograph that, that, that Cassini took was of, uh, of the rings as it, as it went through. And in, the, in the outer bit of the rings, it's worth looking at, like, if you Google Cassini's last image, we'll post a link to it on our, um, on our uh, where we post the podcast of Love and Science, which is loveandscience.podbitten.com. But if you look for Cassini's last image, you'll see the rings. And in the rings, you'll see something that looks like a propeller. It looks like the front of the propeller from an old propeller plane. And, and that is a moon forming in the rings. And by looking at that, uh, those images, over the 13 years that the orbit's going on, we've been able to see how these planets, how these moons are formed in the rings of Saturn. That's the first time that we've been able to see uh, things in orbit around, in a ring system rather than in free space. And it tells us an awful lot, actually, not just about the way that moons form, but it, it, those moons form very similar ways to the way that planets form in an uh, early solar system. So in the early solar system, there's the sun in the, in the middle of it with this um, accretion disk, which is essentially like rings. It's an awful lot of matter orbiting the, the sun in its early days. And then uh, it's the same thing with, with Saturn, similar thing with Saturn, really. There's the planet, and then around it, there's these disks of uh, which we see if we look through telescopes. Um, but equally, Cassini has seen in this amazing detail. And um, it, the moons form in a very similar way to the planets. So this mission is telling us an awful lot about the way our planet and all the planets in our solar system came to be, uh, which is kind of amazing. And the other thing, just to say, is that you know, all those images that we've got from Cassini. It, the, do you know how many megapixels the camera was? I have no, no idea. idea. One. One megapixel. What? Really? Yeah. Oh, back in 2004. Back in 2004. Oh, yeah. That's insane. But just ponder that. If we sent the mission now, with the cameras we've got now, what would we we be seeing? You're listening to Love and Science on BCFM. Uh, So, have you guys um, got plans for the rest of the year? Uh, not many, Don't actually. Worry. Don't worry. <laughs> I mean, because, I've got a few. <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's good news in a way. Uh, the world is ending. Um, it's not, obviously. <laughs> but yet again, somebody has come up and said that uh, the end of the world is nigh. Um, I don't know if you've noticed over the uh, 2,000 years that this has been a message. It hasn't ended yet. I mean, I, you can kind of see why someone who's looking at the world as it is today might think, yeah, this is the end times. I can yeah. see this coming. But uh, anyway, um, there's a new one. Yeah. Um, somebody called David Mead, uh, who's an uh, evangelical Christian from a, uh, an organisation called Unsealed, has released a video online um, with the title, uh, September the 23rd, 2017, you need to see this. Just as a spoiler, you don't. You really don't. <laughs> I actually I actually really enjoyed the little video. Okay. I watched it for research purposes. <laughs> and it is it is really quite dramatic. And there's a lot of, lots of images of like a, an angelic pregnant woman kneeling on the moon um, to go along with some imagery about... It's from the Revelation, the book of Revelation, saying that the end of the world will come when there's like a, a woman... Uh, wearing the, wearing the sun or cloaked in the sun, standing on the moon, and she'll be in, crowned with like a nine stars. nine stars, twelve stars, 12 stars. Yeah. and she Let's will give birth, and then that will <laughs> to be accurate, to be yeah. scientific, um, <laughs> and that will signal the end of days. Uh, well, it's not quite because she'll then be threatened by a red seven-headed yeah. dragon. That's some some high qual. Uh, 
graphics in the video as well. A nice dragon, yeah. Okay. Um, the dragon is supposed to represent Satan. He wants the baby, which is okay. supposed to be Christ and his church. And there's not really, it's, it's very dramatic. There's a lot of music and there's a few words on the screen, but not very much. So okay. if I had just watched that and not read the article, I really wouldn't have known what. It's what brainwashing. Was actually, what, yeah, brainwashing. It's well, very that's emotive. Let's, let's give it a bit more detail because uh, David Mead, David Mead has been speaking, and he says um, Jesus lived for thirty-three years. Uh, the name Elohim, which is the name of God to the Jews, was mentioned thirty-three times in the Bible. Um, it, it, he says it's very biblically significant. Yeah. I don't know. That's quite a Jesus jump, died but, at age thirty-three as yeah. well. Yes, important. Okay. Um, he says it's numerologically a significant number. And then he says, I'm talking astronomy, I'm talking the Bible, and I'm merging the two. Just to be clear, as an astronomer, he is not talking astronomy. <laughs> he is talking astrology. Okay. <laughs> uh, but he's, he's actually talking Freudian nonsense. slip. <laughs> actually, I remember watching a documentary about Bibles. Oh, yeah. <laughs> or the Bible, I should say. Um, and you can literally find whatever you want to find within the Bible. Yeah. There's some, you know, kind of parameters that you can set, and it will search through the Bible, and it will show you, like, you can find your name in the Bible alongside your date of birth, and apparently that's, like, you know, symbolic. But yeah. actually, yeah. I think it's just clever Isn't tweaking it? and yeah. stuff that's going on. There's just quite a lot of information. Exactly. Yeah, it's a lot, a lot of, of words. There's a lot, a lot of, of words in the, in the hmm. I've tried reading it. I got about... I, got, I think I got up to, like, the Psalms and yeah. I ran out of steam. It's quite long. I, 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 have, um, I have a qualification in religion. I have read it several times. Mm. Um, it, some bits are quite entertaining. Yeah. They, um, it, but uh, let's stick to the science yes. bit of this, mm-hmm. the astronomy bit. So the, the idea is that there's a, a planet, mm. Nibiru or something, planet X. Which yes, is, which is we didn't talk about the, the, the reason 33 mm. is important because it's, it's supposed to be that this thing is going to happen 33 days after the eclipse that we just had. Okay. Oh, yeah. That's why it's yeah. important, which is okay. a really nice, tenuous, strong link. So. <laughs> Back okay. to you. Okay, so the, the idea is that there's this planet that's coming into our solar system. Um, if it was at the end of this week, just to be clear, just so we know that we're talking nonsense and nobody should panic, if there was a planet entering our solar mm-hmm. system now, we would be noticing the effects of it, we would be seeing it itself, even if it was dark, we'd be seeing the influence it would have on the orbits of the other planets. It literally isn't happening. Not news to anyone I know. Well, you'd like to think so. But this is getting news. People are broadcasting this. Yeah. And we should say, actually, to be fair, that obviously, of course, there are millions of religious people and this is just one person yeah. who's... Well, it's one group, um, one sect, I suppose, it's who was saying this particular thing. Ed Setzer, who's a pastor, says... A pastor, sorry. He says that there's, there's no such thing as a Christian numerologist. Mm. Um, you basically got here a made-up expert in a made-up film field talking about a made-up event and I think Ed uh, sums it up perfectly there yeah. for us. Um, he says as well like when when people start making these wild unfounded claims like it 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 hurts the church when yeah. they do these things as well it's just it's just fear-mongering yeah really. especially if it gains momentum exactly. like this one has and really gets like hyped up and goes viral and yeah. loads of people see it yeah Negative. Um, so we'll leave the last word to Ed Setzer, the pastor. He says, we do believe some odd things, like that Jesus is coming back and that he will set the world right. And no one knows the day or the hour. Well, there we are. Thanks, Ed. 
Uh, you're listening to Love and Science on BCFM. And uh, recently, uh, there was a book released by Angela Saini called Inferior, How Science Got Women Wrong and the New Research That's Rewriting the Story. Um, it's a fascinating book, and it looks at how, uh, over the years, science has said one thing about women, or a few things about women, which, when you actually look at it, it's that the science didn't say it, but the scientists themselves, when they were making their conclusions, drew conclusions which were wrong. Um, and uh, essentially what it says is there isn't very much that you can say that is particularly peculiarly women or particularly peculiarly men. And uh, in terms of brains, for example, women and men's brains are the same. Um, It's just there are uh, very similar, but there there isn't a female brain and a male brain. There are, there's a spectrum of differences and men and women sit at all different parts of the spectrum of the brain. That's what the science is apparently showing. Anyway, I caught up with Angela and had a chat about it. My name's Angela Saini. I'm a science journalist. And uh, I've written a new book called Inferior, How Science Got Women Wrong. And what inspired you to write the book? Well, really, it's just it was just an attempt to know myself better. <laughs> so there's a lot of research that's published um, and that makes it into the press, talking about how different men and women are. Um, you know, this idea that women can't read maps and women are no good at parking and men are no good um, at expressing themselves or they're not emotional enough. And um, it doesn't—it didn't really chime with my experience of real life because to me, everyone seems different. You know, there are men who fit that stereotype, there are women who fit the stereotypes, but there are also plenty of people who don't. So I just wanted to know the facts. What does science actually say about sex difference and what is... Uh, the account that it gives of men and women. Um, And what I found fascinating wasn't so much the science. The science itself is actually quite early, um, and it can't tell us a huge deal, particularly neuroscience, for instance. We have a very rudimentary understanding of the brain. Um, And even on behaviour, we're still only just starting to get to grips with the fact that we as humans are all... Uh, very variable as individuals but what I found really fascinating was the fact was the the kind of story behind the science so what were the motivations of these scientists who were saying these things Uh, what were their agendas what was the narrative that they were trying to paint and also how were the public reacting to their research um, taking hold of it and using that to either augment or challenge their own stereotypes. Is there anything in the science that you can see that's making a clear definition between men and women? Well, yeah, of course, there are differences. There are some physical differences between men and women. Um, the obvious physical ones that we all know, like upper body strength and height, um, you can't deny that. Although, again, like I said, these things sit on average. So there will be many women who are stronger than, than some men. And there will be many women who are taller than some men, um, which is a strong argument for saying that we shouldn't um, discriminate based on sex alone, given that this spectrum exists. But even on psychological, um, when it comes to psychological differences, uh, it's it's more of a grey area, partly because everyone is so different. You know, the differences within the sexes are far greater than the differences between the sexes, and that really muddles the results it means that different studies get often get very different results um and also different studies get different results over time um which just goes to show how social and cultural factors also impact biology directly um yeah and i was prepared for that i was prepared for the possibility that there might be (laughs) 
things that didn't sit happily with my kind of feminist view of the world. And there were, there are some things. For example, there's some studies that suggest quite strongly that um, young girls um, from the age of two prefer to play with dolls, again, just on average, and boys prefer to play with trucks, again, on average, and that there is possibly a biological basis to this, although that isn't set in stone yet. Work still needs to be done. You and I and everybody are subject to our own bias. And How do you check against yours when you're looking at this research? The thing is, I honestly thought I was a very liberal, open-minded, prejudice-free person before I wrote this book. Writing the book has made me question my own uh, feelings about the world because I, I, I honestly did... I think I honestly did think underneath that there were some fundamental differences in the way men and women think. To learn that actually there probably aren't very great differences has been a real surprise to me. And it has forced me to um, question the way I treat people. I, I like to think I treat everybody the same, but I'm not sure that I do. Um, so in every interaction that I have, in every encounter that I have, uh, every time I write about people, um, I'm so, so careful now to make sure that I don't rest on old gender stereotypes, that I'm, I'm actively trying to rid myself of that baggage because I think it's vitally important to treat people as individuals rather than carry those assumptions. The book is called How Science Got Women Wrong and the new research that's rewriting. Tell me about the new research. Well, I think, for me, it's the most exciting part of the story. Um, uh, because there is, uh, if you think about all the mistakes that have been done, not just in the past but also now, um, of course people aren't ta taking this lying down. People are challenging these ideas, and especially as women have entered the sciences in much greater numbers since the 60s and 70s and 80s, they in particular, and particularly I should say women who identify as feminists, um, have challenged these ideas and tried to replicate previous experiments, they've tried to um, look more broadly at some of the science, and they have done truly incredible work, um, broader, more universal work, really thoughtful stuff that um, really paints a very different picture uh, of women um, from the one that Darwin had. So, for example, um, there's a great researcher who I had the huge privilege of spending some time with, Sarah Blaffer-Hurdy, um, who is now an emeritus professor living in California, in Sacramento. And she's written a number of books um, on motherhood, on female behaviour, on sexual behaviour uh, since the 80s. Um, and she's pretty well known in the US, but I really do think she should be a household name everywhere because her ideas have really challenged these long-standing sexist stereotypes in science and tried to rewrite that story. And the work she's done is so incredible. It's truly groundbreaking. And in fact, some other women I've interviewed, other women evolutionary biologists I've interviewed, have said that her work has moved them to tears because it's just so incredible. It's so clever and well thought out. Um, so I recommend her. And one another hope I have for Inferior is that people read the book, learn about the work of these incredible female scientists, and then also look up their work and start reading their books too. Uh, you're listening to Love and Science on BCFM. And uh, well, scientists at Belfast University, Queen's University Belfast, have developed a new flexible organic battery. Matty. <laughs> 
take it from here. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, so I work a little bit with um, flexible materials uh, for my PhD. So I think this is why Andrew has uh, <laughs> thrown this in my direction. Um, yeah, so a team led by Dr. Srinivasan, sorry, don't know how to pronounce names, um, have developed these flexible organic batteries for use particularly in medical implants. And the example that they've given is in pacemakers and defibrillators. So I don't know how many people are familiar with this kind of setup, but there's one implant that goes into your heart and there's another one that is under the skin to hold the rigid metal batteries. Because even though we're putting the batteries that you and I might recognize and know, like our double A's and triple A's, like they're not that size, but I think we can all agree that they're solid, rigid lumps of metal. So putting these into the body is not particularly uh, comfortable um, for the patient. Um, so obviously there's a desire and need for stuff to be developed that is flexible so that it can move with the body and not be quite so uncomfortable. Um, so they've developed these batteries with um, organic materials, which means that they can also decompose, um, thus addressing the issue of recycling the rigid batteries that we have. And they've made it from um, mixing cellulose, which is a long chain of sugars, which is found in a lot of different plants, um, with other long chain uh, molecules and stuff, um, to form a flexible battery, um, which is pretty neat, really. Yeah, it's in, I, I mean, do you have a sense of how flexible? Is it like, is it like a piece of paper? Or well, yeah, so there's images. Like, obviously, we can't really characterise this with like a property, but it looked like it folded pretty much in half without damaging any of the functioning of the battery, which is pretty awesome, really. It also opens the gateway for lots of um, flexible-based battery technology, such as smartphones and laptops. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that was the original thing that I thought when I saw it. I thought, Mm. I didn't think about the healthcare thing. That's good. (laughs) I was thinking, yeah, if you could have, like, a battery-powered screen that was really flexible, you could pop it in your pocket and then go and watch a film, like, under the stars somewhere. This Ooh. flexible screen that just rolled out. Yeah, pretty cool. Yeah, and then yeah. also you wouldn't have these problems with um, smashing up the screens of your phones and stuff. Yeah, oh, yeah, wobbly mm. phones. But yeah, because I guess like the the screen and stuff would have to be flexible materials as well. Yeah, uh, if it got that far. But primarily the healthcare stuff is what absolutely. is the important thing here. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, Maddie, uh, sorry to put you on this box. We didn't. I didn't say I was going to do this. But um, you, it, what what is your PhD then? What are you looking at? <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> right, so, um, yeah, so I'm a final year PhD student, so I'm sort of not really as in love with my work as I should be. <laughs> um, so I develop um, hydrogels, and these are um, basically these long-chain molecules that I was talking about, which we call polymers, which are essentially groups of repeating units of smaller things. Um, I work with those, um, again, for medical applications, mm. um, so I make these hydrogels that exhibit some kind of order, hopefully. <laughs> and they do. It looks really cool. <laughs> um, and I'm trying to make ordered hydrogels so that we can control um, the network, because this is rapidly getting quite sciencey. Sorry. Um, so hydrogels that we use in applications such as tissue engineering, which is growing of fake organs for organ replacements and such like, um, the limitation in using those is that we can't control how the different um, polymers within the hydrogel interact with each other to form the gel itself. Mm-hmm. So it's largely quite disordered, and there might be clumps of stuff in one place, and it might be very empty in other places. And when we add actual cells into those um, networks, 
because that's what we do to kind of grow them and make them all join together into mm. tissues. Um, it means that we can't control where they go within the jowl, so we can't ensure that they're going to communicate in the way that we want them to. So the idea with my project is to try and introduce order into these gels so that we know where the clumps of stuff are and where the holes are in the network so we can control where the cells might go once we add them in and hopefully be able to make them grow into nice tissues and organs. So, yeah. so when you see a story like this, do you, do you kind of look at it and get it straight away? You say, oh, I know what they've done there and, and that's going to work. Do you know what I mean? Right? Um, well, I'm kind of like, oh, that's really cool. Yeah. I'm a little bit jealous. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then I'm also like, oh, yeah, this is cool. Maybe I could have a go at doing something sort of like this. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, no, I do get it. And there is a real drive for, you know, improving the materials that are used in, you know, healthcare, not only for patient comfort, but just for ensuring that, you know, stuff works better yeah. and lasts longer. Yeah so that we don't have to keep going back to hospital and having mm. further treatments. And I think it's quite forms. a sort of science fiction thing, you know? In my head, I've, I, I'm seeing... Um, I don't know, I feel like Blade Runner or something. <laughs> That's what I'm seeing. Does it, how far in the future are we talking about with these things? Well, right now, clearly, because, I mean, we've got these kind of things. So we've, they've exhibit, exhibited that they can be made and they've done tests and shown that they can work. So I guess the next step now would be to actually start trying them in animals or humans, like I guess that'll probably be where the study goes. Mm. Um, unfortunately, what I've noticed a lot of the times, and also with my work, is that while we can demonstrate these proof of concept things and show that they can be made, I mean, not necessarily the case with this work because the components for the chemicals that are used do seem to be quite biologically compatible. So that's okay, we can put them in the body, it's not going to cause us any harm. But a lot of the things I read about. Um, uh, at work, <laughs> uh, you know, proof of concept things because the materials that they're made with just wouldn't really work, like for cells to grow in or f in the human body, which is a shame. But you know, it's only a matter of time before we develop the right materials. Yeah. Okay. It's a brave new world in the future. <laughs> and um, it, we sometimes on the show we, we put uh, questions to scientists that we've had from listeners, and uh, quite often that question comes from my daughter Lyra, which is the case this week. Um, Lyra is an inquisitive young person and uh, asked me a lot of questions, some of which I can answer, um, quite a lot of them about space, some of which I can't answer. And uh, she had one recently, she's got a lot of wobbly teeth, she's lost a couple of teeth and she's got her grown up teeth coming through and the question was, where are they hiding? You can't feel them in your gums and surely they're not in your gums when you're uh, they're her age, but it's her question. So I have no idea. I literally no idea where those teeth are coming from. So I met up with Rachel Petrunia. Sorry, Rachel, if I've said your name wrong. Um, who uh, answered that question for me. Development of teeth start really early, sort of into the fifth week of development, so within the womb. What is going to be your future jaw? Contains lots of little tooth germs. Um, so one tooth germ equals one future tooth. And at the start, these are on a microscopic level. And we have our baby teeth, which are our primary teeth, and our adult teeth, which are the permanent teeth. And they actually start growing really close together, and the adult teeth are only slightly behind. So it's not as if the adult teeth start developing years after the, the baby teeth. And it's a really uh, strictly controlled event, and it involves lots of different chemicals produced by the body that are sending signals to these cells. 
and the cells um, change um, into sort of different side cells and they specialise so that they can produce the structures that we see in our teeth now, so enamel, dentine and pulp. And uh, the stages of formation and also eruption are the same for the primary and permanent dentition. And the three main stages of eruption is the first stage is erupting through the bone, so they have to go uh, through the, the bone that's found in the jaw. Then they have to um, go through the mucosal penetrating stage, which is where the tooth has to erupt through um, sort of the pink soft tissue in your mouth. And then you have the stage known as the superosseous stage, which is where um, the teeth actually move into the position that they're currently in in your mouth and meet the opposite tooth in your opposing arch. So obviously around uh, the age of seven or eight, you'll begin to get your first wobbly tooth. And what happens at this point is that your primary tooth, which has a root to keep it within the jawbone and keep it stable when you're eating, um, starts to resolve between certain cells in the um, jaw will start eating away at the root and that's just to make it more wobbly so it can fall out. Um, and if you've ever seen a baby's tooth when it falls out it's sort of a really stumpy little tooth and you can't see much of what you can see in the mouth. Um, this is because of this resorption that's happened. And there's lots of different theories about how the adult teeth erupt after this. Um, but the likely theory is that the tooth moves through the bone in a sort of channel pathway that's created for it. There's bone remodelling that happens, which is where in certain areas of the bone, bone is taken away and eaten away from, by certain cells. And then there's other areas of the bone which is made up um, and more bone is produced. And it just produces this channel for the tooth to move through and then it moves through the bone, through the mucosa and then into the mouth where you can see it. Even once the tooth is in the mouth, it actually takes a further two to three years for the root to finish forming. And then after that, you have your tooth. You're listening to Love and Science on BCFM Radio. Delighted to say we've been joined in the studio by John Ford. Hello. How are you? All right, yeah. You? You all good? Yeah, not too bad. Eclectic mix today. Oh, thanks, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, we've been trying really hard to avoid Donald Trump and climate change. <laughs> I mean, if he walks in the door, we'd avoid him. I mean, sci-fi <laughs> films, Cassini, the end is nigh, organic batteries. I mean, what else can you talk about? Uh, I don't know. Have you got anything yeah. for us? Um, Helps <laughs> out. Well, yeah, yeah. Um, look, there's not a lot of uh, stuff that's happened on this day back in history. So I've, I've had a look at the scientists who were born on this day, okay. mm. um, most of whom are popped their clogs a long time ago. Um, Sir John Graham Kerr, anyone know uh, or heard of Sir John Graham Kerr and what he was famous for? No. No, not me too. Um, <laughs> he was born in 1869. Uh, he was 87 when he died, which is not bad, is it? Mm. Uh, died in 1957. He was uh, an embryologist. Um, his research um, advanced knowledge in the evolution of vertebrates. Stay with it. It's quite interesting, this. He also um, <laughs> promoted ideas of naval camouflage. For World War One, you see, early in his career, he was um, pursuing his zoo uh, zoology uh, interests, and uh, he went off on two expeditions to the uh, Pilcomayo, I think that's how you pronounce it, river in South America. Um, then he wrote to Winston Churchill in 1914 and referred to observing animals who camouflage themselves in, in South America and recommended painting warships with graduated shadings. So he invented camouflage. Oh, now, that's hey. pretty scientific, isn't oh, it? It's not too. His fellow, so, so it's John Graham Kerr invented 
how to hide from people. So that's good. That's so if Donald Trump walked in, just to link it back, we'd yeah. all want to camouflage ourselves, wouldn't we? Do you know we? what I've always struggled <laughs> with, with camouflage? What? You can always see them. You know what I mean? I can... Or maybe you Wait, animal, animals or people? Uh, people. Oh. Yeah. People camouflage. tend to wear it like in urban environments. Oh, right. Yeah. It's not well, it, I mean, there, if, if you see like a soldier coming down the street, it's always good fun to bump into them and say, sorry, I didn't see it coming down, mate. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's in his camouflage, isn't he? Um, Charles Valentine Riley, anyone know or heard of him? No. Born in uh, 1943. He was an interesting fellow. He was a British-American-born entomologist who, who pioneered the scientific study of insects for their economic impact in agriculture. Ooh. So he pretty much recognised, not invented, but recognised cross-pollination, I suppose. That's oh. pretty good. That's yeah. pretty good. It's good, isn't it, yeah? I mean, we've got to celebrate these people. Yeah. Um, he died at the age of uh, 51, sadly. And then there's a fellow called Charles uh, Sidelet. He was, uh, or Charles Sidelet, he was French, uh, born in 1804, lived to the right by the age of 78. He was a, a surgeon. He coined the word microbe. Really? Yeah, from uh, microorganism in 1871. So we talk Pretty about handy. microbes. This is the fella who invented the word. That's the lad. Yeah, he's he, he a man, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I just thought it'd be interesting to celebrate those born on this day, yeah. um, 18th of September, because um, it was my birthday the other day. So. Oh, but, happy um, birthday. Yeah, happy that, was belated, yeah. that was all right. That's OK. <laughs> I'll drop that in. So you know, There's loads of other scientists who did some pretty dull stuff, but they were the most interesting oh, OK, thanks very much. Now, Maddie, yeah. uh, on Wednesday night this week, people can come and hear you speak. Indeed, if you haven't had enough of me mumbling away. <laughs> um, yeah, so Wednesday, 7pm on the Grain Barge, I'm going to be doing a set at Science Show Off, which is a science cabaret. So people get nine minutes to talk about whatever science-related stuff they would like. And I'm going to be doing a piece on, well, titled Confessions of a PhD Student. The highs, the lows, <laughs> the things that I've learned over the last few years, which should hopefully quite be, be more entertaining than scientific. Is it serious stuff, or was it kind of a stand-up routine? Oh, mine is definitely more stand-up. I think other people... Well, it, comedy, it varies. You know, so you do make fun? Yeah, 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 basically making fun of myself and the different situations I've... That's <laughs> unique, isn't it? Because you, you have stand-up comedians with themes, mm -hmm. but you don't have stand-up... Science comedians. That's good. Quite you... a niche audience, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so, can you give us some routine? Yeah. Give us some of the routine. Oh, well, I don't, want, I don't want to spoil it. But, um, there are highlights such as uh, what do you do when you get weird kind of throat gurgles in a meeting? You're presenting your data. <laughs> like, oh, I don't really know how to style this out. I haven't quite worked it out. So, audience participation and suggestions would be welcome. Okay. But yeah, stuff along that, stuff along those lines. So that, that's um, Wednesday night at the Grain Barge. And uh, well, don't give it too much away because we've got all the new PhD students starting this week. That's true. So we don't want to put them <laughs> off, do we? <laughs> oh, it shouldn't put you off. Just be like, yeah, all these things that, as well as low. Yeah, all these things that happen, you know. Do you sing as well? Uh, no, I cannot no. sing. Do you sing, John? No. Do you want to sing as well? No, no, I, I can't sing. Do you sing? I, I don't. No. I can barely speak, to be honest with you. Uh, thank you very much for, uh, to Hannah and Maddie for joining thank us. Thank you for having us. Thanks, of course, to John. John will be getting Bristol home after the... and science. <laughs>